Welcome to The Stanza, a show for investors and entrepreneurs in the creative industries. I'm your host, Nadine Cho, and I'll be sharing stories of unique people creating their own paths. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. Today's guest is Brandon Snower, founder of Leal Frey, a menswear brand based in New York City. You may recognize his brand story from his viral TikTok, in which he shares how he went from investment banking to starting a brand during the pandemic. We chatted about the ups and downs of entrepreneurship, how he managed having $3,000 in his bank account at one point, how he's positioning Leal Frey in a sea of new fashion brands, and getting great press for Leal Frey. He's made incredible progress in the past two and a half years since he's been working on Leal Frey, not only from a sales perspective, but he's also secured investment from several people, including the former head of Richemont Group North America. Well done. This interview really highlights an attitude I think is absolutely essential for all entrepreneurs, and that is resourcefulness. Some people may even call it scrappiness. My view is that it's the willingness to find solutions to problems instead of feeling defeated when you come across obstacles. We touch on that in the episode, but I want wanted to mention that it's a trait I've noticed in all successful people. The best names in the members club business all use people vine to deliver a seamless hospitality experience. If you're an entrepreneur building a members club, avoid the headache of setting up CRM that connects billing, events, and dining reservations and check out how you can integrate people vine into your business. They've been building their software for nearly a decade and a demo will show you why the best members clubs all use people vine. I'll leave a link in the show notes so you can check out which brands are also using people vine and also book a free demo for your business. Now back to the episode. Hello, Brandon. Welcome to the Stanza podcast. It's so cool to have you on today. Thanks for having me and happy Friday. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start from the beginning. What skills did you gain from your time working in finance? And can you explain what exactly you were doing and how that has helped you as an entrepreneur? I think working in finance was the best thing that happened to me in terms of just work experience, understanding how to work, the things that I apply now to what I learned wasn't necessarily the technical aspects. It was more of the soft skills of, you know, how to send an email correctly, how to follow up, how to, you know, communicate effectively and efficiently of what you want, you know, what needs to be done. It's a lot of these skill sets that I think People think finance, say they think financial forecasting and modeling. But yeah, I learned that, which was super helpful. But at the scale of where you're starting your business, it's like you're not dealing with billions of dollars and looking at 10Ks. You're literally doing cash flow of what you have in your bank, right? And then you have investors and the cap table and all these things that you don't really know uh, because it's a different world of finance. So it was more of, okay, I, I know how to work, right? Because you're working long hours. And that was something that was a huge advantage to me because once you start your own business and once you're, you know, really growing, it's nonstop mm-hmm. and you have to be able to mentally and physically, you have to cope and really understand how to power through those days, weeks, months of just work. Totally. I actually get this question a lot. And you were in investment banking, right? Yeah, I was doing a debt restructuring advisory. That was, and it was a small team. It was just me and my ED. That was so you it. were getting so crushed. I was doing, yeah, I was doing yeah. everything, mm-hmm. which was good, you know, in hindsight, but it was, 
it was brutal. You know, I only did it for a year mm-hmm. out of college. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, like six to eight months in, I kind of knew that I wasn't going to do this long term. So I just felt like if I don't really love it, then I shouldn't do it. I feel like when I, when I hear stories like yours, because I was in finance, I was in private equity real estate for seven years. And I was also very similar to you. Like I knew going in that it wasn't going to be long term, but I think the longer you stay, the harder it is to just be like, oh, but like the salary and like the bonus and you're just like, you're just kind of like staring into the abyss. And yeah, I mean, from your perspective, I mean, doing one year, how did you work up the courage to leave and and go on your own? It was a slow process. It was like, all right, I'm waking up every day calling my dad. I'm like, fuck, I don't want to go to work. You know, and then if, if, and like every day, if you're doing that, that's a pretty indicative sign, you know, not to continue to do that. I know what so many people do, they do continue. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And also, so to backtrack to my, also my experience in finance is pretty different than a lot of people. I didn't study finance in college. I didn't know basically majority of things that people should know coming into it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very, I'd say like lucky, but I also, you know, luck is like an interesting word. Obviously, like you put yourself in that position, but the bank came to my school and I just hit it off with the two guys, told them, you know, I didn't study econ or finance or math. I was studying organizational change and psychology, but you know, I was working out those like wall street prep courses. But when I got the the super day, got the job, I was the only one in that analyst class that didn't study finance or econ or statistics. And so I had to stay super late with the teacher to help me know how to do an income statement, cash flow analysis, like all these things. I had no idea what any of these line items meant. This is the Mm -hmm. first time I've seen it, but like go from that to, okay, now you're on a one person team doing everything and restructuring modeling every day i didn't know how to fucking model you're in sink or swim mode yeah that's what they would always say sink or swim yeah but it was like for me i came with that background Mm -hmm. of not knowing anything to being this just like workhorse of a one person finance team Mm -hmm. analyst and that gave me the confidence to say if I could do that shit and like put up with that and not enjoy it as much as something that I would enjoy and mm-hmm. was still good at it, I could start anything. Mm-hmm. And so that was like the mindset of like, I'm just going to quit because anything I do, if I just did that for a year and that was brutal, then mm-hmm. I could like start anything. And that's, I just happened to start a clothing company <laughs> uh, from that. There is this interview with um, the founder of Ukes. You know, Ukes that sold to Netta Porter. It's that uh, luxury yeah. retail. So the founder, it's a, it's an Italian interview. I'll have to send it to you later. But he's interviewed yeah. by Fedes, who's the husband of Chiara Ferragni. And he talks about his time at Lehman Brothers after Columbia Business School. And he was saying how he knew that he didn't want to stay in finance forever, but there was no better training ground. And I, I was like, yeah, it's so true. Like, it's not about the, the hours or the modeling. It's, you know, how you interact with senior people. And it's about developing that what I like to call an institutional touch yeah and it's I I'm I'm a huge advocate of it like I and I've always said you know everyone should go into finance 
you know, like even if it's not your first job, do it for a year, do it for two years and just learn. Mm -hmm. You should experience that, what it's like. Because I went from, I didn't like, well, I went from finance and then I had the idea to start Lealfre. And then during the time of building Lealfre for the first year, I needed some money. So I worked while I was doing it. And I got a job at a tech company, completely different. And it was the first experience I had at a startup. I was like the ninth employee and everyone was working till like six, seven. And they weren't thinking in a way that was like, okay, A, B, C, D. They were thinking like, you know, A, B, like A, B, A, one, A, two, A, three, like all these things that like weren't needed. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, you just got to do it, right? This is the easiest route. But it was so apparent to me that it was because of finance that I was able to think this way, work this way. Mm -hmm. And it gave me a huge leg up where at this tech company, I was able to stay late at like 8 to 9 p.m. And it like wasn't that bad for me because I was working till like a lot longer than that. And so that was nothing. And then just the way that I operated was just enjoyable for people. It was like a fresh take of being a tech startup, but it like yeah, I wasn't yeah. a tech person. So Lel Frey, first of all, did you get the name from Stad Guy? Uh, you know, no. <laughs> yeah, I know Stad Guy. Also, like I hit him. I knew so one of our club members grew up with him, so I tried to like get in touch with him because of like Lel Frey. But no, I actually got it from Batman, the Butler. His name's mm-hmm. Alfred. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I always thought that was like the coolest, very like sophisticated, elegant name. Also, just mm-hmm. like a great guy in the movie. Uh, mm-hmm. Also, he's just Sir Michael Caine, which is just a legend. Uh, but Alfred, I was trying to think of a name and this character that I drew, which is the logo, I wanted him to have a name. And I wanted him to kind of be this personification or emblem of who the brand is through like his personality. So I wanted to give him a name as opposed to like a brand. So I thought of Alfred and then I thought of just, I wanted to make it French and just elevated and luxurious. So I added the lay. Why not Italian? I don't know. I like the French culture. So like, I I mean, I love the Italian culture too, but (laughs) the the French, it's just, I love Art Deco, Art Nouveau. It's like mm-hmm, my favorite mm-hmm. art pieces. Also, it's incorporated into the brand. We do limited edition graphic tea drops with artists. Also, if you come to the showroom, I have Art Deco and Art Nouveau everywhere, and it's beautiful. But that style of like art and lifestyle is just what I enjoy, and so I wanted to add Lay. Also, it rhymed from an SEO perspective. No one has Lay Alfred if you type it in, so we rank number one. Like it was very mm-hmm. strategic. It wasn't just. Mm-hmm. It was very thought out, and I get shit a lot from like French people or people who speak French that are like, oh, it's like Le Alfred with like L apostrophe. I'm like, dude, like fucking relax. Like it's, it's a playful brand. This was like a strategic thing. You know, we incorporate Lay into our brand. So it's like Lay Club is the club, like Lay Oxford shirt, you know, like all these things that it's like playful. So yeah, that's. uh... And how did you come up with the, the brand itself? Like why? focus on men's shirtwear and not like whatever's trending, you know, like streetwear and stuff. Yeah. So I'm more of a classic. I wear classic clothing and my style is more of this like elegant kind of European style. I grew up in a household that was, you know, half Peruvian, Italian and, you know, half American. So I grew up with more of this European 
understanding of culture, life, and definitely clothing. And so in terms of just growing up, it was that way of dressing. And when I saw streetwear, I think it's awesome. Like I follow streetwear brands avidly. When I moved to New York, those were the first brands that appealed to me, but I didn't wear them as a consumer. Also, they're pretty expensive relative to, I think, the quality and craftsmanship. Um, so I wanted to kind of blend the two, but do it in a space that's authentic to who I am and who I think a lot of guys are in the US and kind of change the industry to make it a little more youthful, a little more fun, exciting, culturally relevant, the same way that streetwear does it. Uh, and mm -hmm. I just saw this huge gap and I still think it's there. So we're trying to you know, change this in the industry. Mm -hmm. So walk me through your production process. And I'm trying to understand what makes the actual shirts. I mean, I, I, just a disclaimer to the audience listening. I haven't seen the shirts in person, but they look amazing online. And like all the content that you produce looks really cool and interesting but tell us more about your production process like what makes your shirts unique and like what type of audience you're trying to cater to yeah yeah and i think this is a big question right like everyone wants to know the quality the you know what separates you from a product standpoint we work exclusively in portugal right but like i know a lot of other brands might do that too but it's really like the attention to detail of everything that we do as a company into our products. So whether that's the fit, right? Like our return exchange rate is incredibly low, under 10%. And at a, at a point in time last year, it was like 2%. Obviously we're growing, so it kind of, you know, it's not scalable, but still like to have that based off of the fit is pretty incredible for shirts where the average is like this 20 to 30%. So we work with our factory and so to backtrack, I flew to Portugal for a month and was just living there to knock on the doors of these factories and try to find literally the best factory. So we partner with our shirt maker, which is the oldest one in Portugal. They only do men's shirts. They've not done anything else. So my understanding, and again, to go into this finance background, like when I started finding factories and suppliers, I was thinking of it in a, a banking perspective, right? You have groups, you have the fig team, you have the debt advisory team, you have consumer, you have all these different specific areas where people are experts in. So I was like, let's do that in factories. So let's have fabric mills that only do shirt, fa uh, shirt fabrics. And they're the best at that. And then we have a button supplier that only does the best buttons. We have a shirt maker that only does shirts. They don't touch t-shirts. They don't touch hats. They don't touch bags. I was in, and a lot of brands, what they do is they have, because it's easier logistically to have one factory do everything, right? It's mm -hmm. convenient. You get lower costs because you're buying hats and t-shirts and all these other accessories, but they're super average, if not like way worse production wise, quality, stitching, assembly. So it's like everything we do for products, it's one factory that's specializing in this one thing. So our rugby's, they only do like rugby's and tees, like this like circular knit. We're dropping vests. They only do like fleece vests and outerwear for fleece. We're doing sweaters, like knit sweaters. They only do like the highest quality knits with like special machines. So it's like 
the shirts are specialized in every single thing. So that's kind of like the realm of what I think separates our shirts from other brands that might not pay attention to this insane level of detail of every aspect of the shirt. And plus, if you're doing shirts for 76 years, you know, you better be pretty damn good at it. And that is just a testament to our return rate, our repeat purchase rate, like all these things, this retention side of things, it's like incredible because of the fact that we want to have the best of the best in our shirts. I think something else that differentiates your brand is the way that you're going about doing it. So like, you know, from my view, like I first heard about you through TikTok and just looking at you know, the way that you tell your story as a founder, like transitioning and like talking about like the ups and the downs. And then also something that's really interesting that I definitely want to talk about is your members club, which you briefly mentioned. Tell us more about that. And what is it exactly? Is it a physical space? Is it a digital membership? And like, how do you how do you go about running that? Yeah, it's both. It's digital and physical. So the way that I see streetwear, like I love the fact that, you know, you're part of this exclusive community. Uh, but I want to do it on another level of private. The experience of purchasing a product, you're automatically digitally in this community of this private club, and we call Lay Club. And what that gets you is literally priority access to any drop that we do, like days before we launch it. So a, an item could be sold out because club members have access to a password protected website that you get to buy this product before the general public. And we've come close a couple times to like fully selling out a product, which I love by the way. Like I've, I, that's like the goal is to like mm -hmm. not have the people in the general public who's never owned or purchased a product not get to be able to buy it because the club members are priority. And my whole concept is let's appreciate and cherish the people that appreciate and cherish us and invest in us. And so like, and if that's at the expense of potential profit and growth, that's totally fine. Because I think from just like a community standpoint, your community is not the people that aren't in the community. The community is the people that purchase the product, invest in your brand mentally, etc. So this club is a tribute to those people. And then physically we have private events. So we had like martini nights where we like, we rent a space. And now that we have a showroom, we have had private events to our showroom where people who aren't in this club, who don't own a product have no idea about it. Like, because it's digitally only exclusive to via email, like the people that are in the club. So like the general public doesn't see the emails. It's not on Instagram. It's not on TikTok. Because it's like, if you know, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, that's the best way to run a members club. I feel like now because they're so democratized, if they're too advertised, it almost loses yeah. its its cachet. Yeah. And I've, and I've dabbled, you know, some sometimes on Instagram just to get people in the club as like a marketing tactic. It's, you know, we showcase this private event that we had and then we kind of run this concept of okay if you want the latest drop or if you want to be invited to this private event next time like purchase a product so i've done that a couple of times but it's by no means a leveraging strategy of acquisition or growth it's mm -hmm. just to like get people to understand that like we actually have this private club and if you're in it you're in it if you're not you're not and like that's it you know it's not like a 
I think brands now, because it's so competitive, right? Like there's so many fashion brands, like all doing really cool things, really talented founders. And I think something that you're doing that is really interesting and definitely like, you know, anyone who's listening to this with a consumer brand can take some lessons and like principles and apply it to their own. Creating community, it's not just about like who buys your product. It's like, okay, like you buy our product, like how can we also add value to you? And I think something that's really cool about what you're doing with these events is the ability to foster new connections so like you know two guys that buy your shirt like who have never met before but they have so much in common I mean they appreciate quality and like design and those things and they buy from you that says a lot about them and their preferences meet and they become good friends or like start a business together and I think like that aspect of community building as a brand is really hard to do it's really hard to execute well because there's just so much on top of what you're already doing but it's super interesting I really I, I really like yeah everything is about community and i know everyone says that but it's like i don't think people understand how obsessed you have to be with like having someone want to be able to meet someone else and connect like that like my Mm -hmm. whole thing is like let's just create the best possible experience for the people that engage and invest in our brand and investment is not you know raising money and investment is buying a baseball cap that's $45. Like that's it, you know? And it's like, and, and it's awesome to see where these private events, like people st- are starting to know each other. Oh, you work in wealth management at Morgan Stanley. Oh, I actually know a buddy who's trying to get a job there or is trying to get a promotion. Can you put me in touch? Of course, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Because now it's like, you know, you have the brand, you're talking, you own the products, so you have the same kind of general aesthetic and lifestyle, but that goes through tech entrepreneurship. It's all the artists, musicians, it's all these different facets. And then you get all these people together that come from these different industries, different mindsets, because at the end of the day, it's not like we're only appealing to people in finance. It's we're appealing to the general aesthetic and lifestyle of who a modern, cool, sophisticated guy is. Mm -hmm. It just happens to be through clothing. Yeah, totally. Um, which I think is really special. And I think, you know, it's that's the outlook and perspective that I think of when building brand and brand equity and community and the classic menswear industry. And this is why I started the brand in part was as a consumer, I felt like I just like no one gave a shit about me. Mm-hmm. They just wanted to sell a product. Mm-hmm. And that was it. And they're still doing that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's hard to execute. Um yeah, but, it takes time. It takes yeah. a lot of time. I'm only yeah. a year and a half in. Now, focusing on your actual story. So I read or I heard somewhere that there was a point where you only had $3,000 in your bank account. Yeah. Tell us that story. That was last year. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's like one of those things where like you just have a gut, like every entrepreneur has like just gut feelings that you just have to do. And it's like, mm-hmm. I knew this campaign, I knew this collaboration was gonna work. I'm just gonna put all my eggs in one basket for this thing. And it was the Trust Fund Terry collab that we did last October. Yeah, and like no one knows like all the shit that goes, that I'm dealing with, right? Like on the outside, cause you just can't let people know, oh, like you have $3,000 in the bank, like blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah of course. Um, yeah. Especially like investors too. But 
it was just like how to grow. Like we needed like a growth. And so we did collaborations and we I got in touch with the finance meme account, Trust Fund Terry, who has like 400,000 followers. Yeah, I love their memes. And yeah, and we did like, I, it was a cold email or cold DM, pitched them this idea of like, let's make a luxury shirt for like your demographic. Like what meme page has ever done that? Like a real like incredible fabric, best mills in Portugal with like a cool brand like us doing things a little differently and he was like yeah like let's do it so we made like a limited edition drop sold out had this huge pop-up in shopify that like had it was the most ever people at their event space like bigger and they've had eminem there they've had so many people there and like we outperformed them to a point where like they wanted us back and like we're gonna do more things there uh mm -hmm. events but it went incredibly well but yeah three thousand dollars i spent my entire cash on the inventory to support this like collaboration because i just knew it was gonna work and then just wow. the, the, the bank account just bounced back after that and like you know half a month a month and i was like oh thank god uh, wow running a brand especially physical products there's so much that goes into the managing of the inventory, the managing of like the manufacturing and the shipping and everything. And I think it's just, it, it amazes me whenever I talk to consumer brand founders, cause I'm like, you guys have so much, so much to manage, like on top of production, you have, you know, marketing and like being on social media and, and there's just a lot of, a lot of moving pieces. Yeah. And I'm still learning, you know, inventory forecasting, management, life cycle, cash flow, like all these things I'm, getting better at and I'm just like learning as I get more data and I do more things but yeah on top of that it's just like I'm still a one-man show so it's incredibly difficult to just do everything <laughs> and how did you get all this press that you've gotten recently in like some pretty big some pretty big publications just like doing what I'm doing to be honest like I've I haven't paid for a single placement. I'm proud to say that. Like, I didn't know anyone in the industry. So the first, I'd say six months, I kind of made it an objective to let writers and editors just know who the hell I am, whether that's in like a good way or a bad way. Bad as in like, I'm a little annoying when like reaching out to them because they're just getting these like cold emails of like this random dude for this brand that like no one's ever heard of. I got my first press in Gear Patrol by this guy, Evan, who was like an incredible guy who like helped me out in the very beginning to say like, oh, this guy's actually, even though he's like a one person company and it's just starting out, like he can compete with these big brands, like in terms of a quality design aesthetic standpoint. So he wrote my first article in Gear Patrol um, of our contrast Oxford shirts. And then from there, like you leverage that into, hey, I just got featured in this. And then you kind of just email and DM other people that write. And it was it's like a slow snowball effect. And then recently, the Wall Street Journal, like that was just me constantly networking. Also, another thing attributed to finance, I was the type of guy since I didn't know anyone and I didn't have any connections, I was I was emailing the like I, I wasn't working at JP Morgan, but if I did, I would email Jamie Dimon and say, Hey, do you want to get coffee? That's the type of person that I am. Like I, it's not yeah, embarrassing yeah. to you do have that. To be. Yeah. And yeah, so, but like totally. I did that with all these EDs, MDs, group heads mm -hmm. and people were like, Oh, like, how are you getting these meetings? I'm like, I'm just emailing them. Just like asking yeah, them yeah, for yeah. coffee. 
So that's how I, yeah. that was my approach. And funny, when I had that same approach to writers and journalists, I would do it on LinkedIn because like, that's what I did. That's but the like, best place, honestly. Yeah, but, but I figured out no writer and journalists are on LinkedIn. They're all on Instagram. You know, so it's just like, yeah, it's I'm not, true. It's true. I'm it's not true. getting hit back up. And I'm like, why the hell am I like, no one's responding to me. So I'm doing it on Instagram and like sending them product. They're loving the product. So then now I'm getting featured in GQ of like a top, you know, shirt to buy in GQ last year. And then you kind of just, it's a patient game. You got to be patient. And then this year was like men's health best Oxford shirts to buy. Wall Street Journal like blew us up, honestly, way more than TikTok did when I get, went viral on TikTok from a sales perspective, mm -hmm. because the demographic mm -hmm. is like who is buying our shirts. Yeah, exactly. So we sold yeah. out on like a ton of our shirts and we're restocking it in like a couple weeks uh, for uh, the holidays. But yeah, it was just like when that Wall Street Journal hit, it was like, these are what cool guys are wearing. And it's this new banker style shirt in a casual way. It was in print and digital, which was nuts because like people are it's like yeah, I it's have a huge circulation. Yeah, like I have copies of our entire article and it was like a full feature of our shirts printed. But yeah, it's just like constantly leveraging what you've gotten. And just now I put all these editors in my company update reports uh like those friday weekly updates so i have hundreds of writers and journalists constantly understanding or at least top of mind to like i don't know if they open it or not but you know i've definitely gotten some press because they've seen the growth from four months ago six months ago to now and it's like oh they're actually doing pretty well they're coming out with new collections they're growing financially having more customers etc oh maybe i should write about them like that's my yeah. strategy yeah, yeah, yeah. There's something really important here I want to highlight to the audience because I get so many questions on like, how do you break into like insert XYZ industry or how do you get in a meeting with XYZ person? And it's like, you have to be resourceful and you just have to have the balls to ask. Like, it's just, it's really simple. It's not, you know, like people, a lot of people nowadays think like, oh, well, I, I don't come from a family with connections. I'm not a Nepo baby, blah, 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 blah. It's like, you actually don't need any of that to succeed. You just need to have obviously yeah. the confidence and then, you know, just the courage to ask for what you want and like, you know, just resourceful thinking. And it's just as yeah. simple as that. Definitely. It's also a positive thing. I'll add to that positive thinking because you get rejected a lot. And it's not to yeah. say that every single person or even like majority of people that I DM or cold message respond to me they don't and it's like very frustrating so it's like having that optimism to say i'm gonna do it again and then reflection to say what did i fuck up in this message that i can iterate and improve on so that the next one i'll have a little more or a little better chance to get a response i'm always iterating yeah. my messaging uh saying like what did i say incorrectly in this that i can use to someone else also it's got to be strategic like people People think that like you just message someone and it's like, boom, that's it. No, like I'm not going to message you on a Monday. I'm going to message you on like, like I'm very nitpicky. So it's like 430 something, or maybe it's like middle of the day, whatever I'm feeling that I would say psychologically they would respond best to given their profile, yeah, totally. given the yeah. times that they were like post on LinkedIn, like I'm liking their stuff before so they like they see my name it's like this entire mm -hmm. strategy that like it takes so much mental effort to like do this and it's not easy to like network effectively like there are yeah. there are reasons yeah. there are reasons why people get meetings and people don't 
And it's not mm -hmm. just because you get like a good message. It's like they see you before, you know, uh, what you say is relevant to them. You do it at the right time, the right circumstance. When we got featured in Business Insider, Alexa York, the last, I've been following her on LinkedIn for six months before I messaged her because I knew that it wasn't the right time to message her. And I only got one shot to send a cold email to her or cold LinkedIn to her. Because if I, if I fucked up that chance, I would not get another one. So six months of me just looking at her stuff, liking her stuff. And then I realized that the last like four articles were specifically Gen Z founders starting something in like a consumer space. And I don't mm -hmm. technically, I'm like the cusp of Gen Z millennials. Like I'm, I consider myself a millennial, like mentally. But after that fourth one, I was like, boom, this is the perfect time for me to say, I just went viral on TikTok. There's a huge demand for like my story of finance to fashion. It's applicable because a lot of guys and women in finance don't necessarily like being in it. This is a perspective of a Gen Z leaving it without any uh, like history, connections, whatever, just on an idea. There's an interesting concept for her to write about. Boom, pitched it. She wrote about it. Full feature in Business Insider. But like it took six months. Like it's not like a yeah. one, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, but that's like the, the idea of like networking that people have to understand. Yeah, totally. This leads me to the next or the last question. So besides this, you gave a lot of great nuggets. What advice would you give to someone who's starting specifically a consumer brand? Like, what would you tell yourself two years ago? Like, Brandon, like, don't do this. Don't waste your time on this. Uh, well, that's a lot. Um, <laughs> that's like so much. Um, technically, from like a from like a technical aspect, I'd say from a technical standpoint, like having really, really sound relationships with your suppliers and making sure that A, you fly to them and meet them in person. At this stage, you're so enthusiastic that you kind of had this idea of like, the first person that you talk to is probably the one that I'll work with. Don't settle. Talk to 50 different suppliers, right? Like when I started, I found a factory in India to make my shirts during COVID. And it was like the first factory that would respond to me and like wanted to work with me. And I was like, oh shit, this must be the one because they're excited to work with me. Absolutely not. That one year turned into the most mistakes, the most uh, anxiety, stress, terrible outcome and execution in the entire history of the company. The shirts were awful. The quality was awful. They were scamming me on like price, lying to me, all these things, just because I was so like excited to like work with anyone on this new idea that I had. That's like probably the biggest mistake and advice. Two is like, you have to be so obsessed on like another level of obsession. If you're not genuinely passionate about what you're doing, what your mission is, what you want to have of your company be, then don't do it. Don't waste your time. Stuff is going to happen where the mistakes out enhance your passion or your enjoyness or enjoy, yeah, it, like your likeness of you just doing what you're doing because shit's going to hit the fan. You're, you're going to be so overwhelmed at times where you're just like, am I going to do this? Like you have, like every entrepreneur has thoughts of like, holy shit, am I doing this? Is this the right thing to do? Like, should I continue? And if you're not like genuinely obsessed with what you're doing and like have that confidence to like say, I'm just going to do it. It's going to be fine. I'm going to work and continue to improve. Then good luck. That's all my, my, because, and that's the thing. Like if you're not obsessed in finance, you're probably not going to be the best of the best. 
it's the people that are obsessed with finance that are going to be the, the top performers because they're going to work harder. They're going to love what they're doing. So they're going to stay longer. They're going to genuinely find interest in what they're doing. So they're going to learn about it and reflect and improve more. And like you can, anyone that's listening out there, like just self-reflect right now. Like, are you the best of the best? Why? Probably not if you're not obsessed with as much as the person next to you and they're the best. But I've always had that obsession. So that wasn't really something that I was worried about, but it's, I think it's the biggest piece of advice because I see people and I talk to a lot of people that aren't, I could just feel it, that they're not obsessed yeah. with it. And it's the way you yeah, talk. Totally. Like, I, see, like I'm getting hyped up right now, mm-hmm. even talking about mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But like, you have to be. And like, people have started companies that ended it and like quit. And I knew it from like a year, two years in. Yeah, totally. So that's kind of the thing. So do something that's super authentic and natural to to what you want to do is kind of the overarching theme. That's great advice. I think for just like anything that you do should be authentic to you. But um, this was so this was very good. I'm I'm really I'm really pleased with this interview. And thank you so much again for coming on and sharing all your insights. Of course. Of course. Happy to chat more about it if you want to do a part two. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. In a year, we'll do a part two. Yeah, definitely.